Hello, welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo, the senior editor at BreastCancer.org. We have a very special guest today. I'm very thrilled. Michael Kaverick is a retired elementary school teacher who is living with metastatic breast cancer. He is the author of Healing Within, My Journey with Breast Cancer, and the former host of the Healing Journeys with Michael Kaverick radio show. He was also one of the people profiled in Breast Cancer, A Story Have Told, a campaign to increase public awareness of metastatic breast cancer. Michael discovered a lump near his left nipple, which was beginning to invert and was diagnosed with breast cancer in January 2007. After his diagnosis, he had genetic testing and learned he had a BRCA2 mutation. In 2010, Michael had a cancer recurrence on his chest wall, which was treated with hormonal therapy and radiation. In September 2015, a persistent cough led to a CAT scan, which showed abnormal lymph nodes. A biopsy later showed that the breast cancer had metastasized to his lungs. Since his metastatic diagnosis, Michael participates in a number of advocacy organizations, including the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, the MBC Alliance, and Metaviver. Later this month, in fact, he'll be driving the Metaviver RV through Washington and Oregon to raise awareness. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. I'm so happy to be here. So we are thrilled to have you. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your life before your initial diagnosis and you know, kind of the thought process, the feeling process that you went through when you learned you were a man who'd been diagnosed with breast cancer? I mean, was that even something that was on your radar? Uh, not, not at all, and I, I, it was something I never heard of, because, um, you know, after finding the lump, um, and, you know, with the inversion, my uh, GP, you know, automatically set me up with a surgeon. And they pretty much all thought it was a cyst. And uh, so when I went to, uh, the surgeon, like a week after the surgery, after the lump was removed, you know, I went by myself because I was like, "This is just a cyst." Nobody even suggested well, cancer. Well, yeah, yeah, no one, no one. They had not at that point, and friends were like, "You know, are you sure you don't want someone coming with you?" I'm like, "No, no, no, it's just a cyst." And so we're there, and like the very first words the doctor said was like, you know, "Michael, I wish I had better news." And he was talking. And um, he said, you know, the lab report is saying that they feel it came from your lungs, the cancer. He goes, but your GP and I have been talking, and we feel that you are going to be, you're one of those rare cases of male breast cancer. And I remember sitting there going, wait, wait, a, wait a minute, breast cancer? Breast cancer? Women get breast cancer. You know, I've never heard of a man getting breast cancer. And so I kind of just went into this, this shell of, and all I'm thinking is breast cancer, breast cancer in my head, and the doctor is talking in the background. And you heard nothing. And I heard nothing, and I, you know, was just like, how is this possible? And uh, and so then, you know, one of the things that I have to say is I've been so fortunate with the physicians that I've been dealing with on this journey. And my GP had been, at that point, had been, you know, my GP for over 18 years, and. He had said to the surgeon, you know, you do not have Michael leave that office until he calls me. And so I, I did and went to see him that day. And, and, and the thing he said was, you know, Michael, if it came from your lungs, we would have known. He goes, I truly believe that you're, you have breast cancer. And he just kind of laid things out. And at that point, I had someone with me okay. to listen because I knew at that point I was not doing a very good job of listening. 
And, you know, and it just, and I think with anyone, I think any woman who hears it, um, you know, your world is just kind of stops. Mm -hmm. and, and it kind of, it's just like tumbling. I just got this sense of like everything was just tumbling around. And I was like, how is this possible? And, um, and so then you know, he hooked me up with this phenomenal oncologist who was not taking new patients, but agreed to take me on. And uh, I, she was a wonderful teacher in how important that relationship is as you're going through this journey. Um, you know, prior to my diagnosis, I was just living my life. I was living outside of Albany, New York. I was teaching elementary school, um, just kind of living and doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this diagnosis and you're like, oh my gosh. You know, I was single uh, um, and just trying to deal with all of that. And so, but it kind of started this um, amazing, amazing journey. Um, you know, not that I'm thrilled to have breast cancer, but, you know, looking at it in a, in a different way, uh, and it took me a while because, you know, when I first got diagnosed, fear just was in the driver's seat. It was there. It was, it was just leading me down this path. And uh, my, all I had in my head was, you know, they had put me on tamoxifen, um, I was having side effects with that drug, and all I kept saying like every day was, all right, get me to that five-year mark. Get me to that five-year mark. I'm done with this, and I can go on living. And I had no idea that I was putting my life on hold, mm. you know, because all I was looking at was this five-year mark, which I now know has really doesn't mean anything. Um, but, you know, at the, at the time, with where I was and what knowledge I had, you know, that's how I was dealing with the breast cancer. Sort of a way to keep it compartmentalized. Yeah, and, yes, and it was like, this is a separate entity in my life. I am not going to allow it to become, you know, part of me. And, you know, so I was like fighting the drug. I was like angry every morning I was taking the tamoxifen pill. Um, you know, I was like, just, okay, I got one year down, mm -hmm. you know, four more to go. But, you know, also within that year, you know, I had the BRCA2 gene discovery. Yeah, how did that come about? Did your doctors suggest it? Yes, or? you know, and that was, you know, that, that's a great question because thankfully my oncologist, because my dad had passed away from pancreatic cancer back in the 90s. Okay. And so she had talked about, you know, doing this genetic testing. And so... Um, first, my insurance company was, was not going to pay for it. Um, she fought it, and then the second time they, they agreed, and it came back positive. And unfortunately, where I was at that time, it, to me, it was just like another layer mm. of cancer on me. You know, it was like, okay, what else is going to come down? Um, you know, and uh, she also encouraged, um, you know, my mom, my brother, and my sister that I talked to them and have them tested, which they were, and they were all negative. So we realized it came from my dad, um, which even then, back then in 2008, um, no, it was 2007 when I found out, I'm sorry, that, uh, you know, it, it was still new that that knowledge of that the BRCA gene, especially with breast cancer, could be passed down 
on the male side. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that it can come from the yeah, other side. You know, and did your was there a history in your father's family? That you know, would suggest? it was just his parents came over from Czechoslovakia. He really had no history of his the family back there. Okay. And so on. And uh, so it was just kind of we're with us, this immediate nuclear family here in the States. Um, and so I was dealing with that too. And um, just like counting the days to that five-year mark, you know, and then um, and then my my initial oncologist retired, and I was with, with another oncologist within that um, practice, which is a big practice in upstate New York. And thankfully, she found uh, she didn't like something in my scar where the initial uh, surgery had been and uh, sent me in for an ultrasound. And when they decided to do a biopsy, when I was there for the ultrasound, I knew something was, was not. Uh, and this was in 2010? 10, yeah. Okay. And so of course I sat there going, okay, now we got to start from day one. Just <laughs> now it's five, five more years. Again, you know? And uh, you know, still in that mindset of putting everything on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I, you know, when I realized the, the uh, cancer had come back, and at that point, Tim and I had been together for a couple of years, my partner, Tim. And um, so he was with me. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful for this doctor. But, and what it was interesting was one of the things she said to me when she was telling us, um, like, what the new therapy was going to be. You know, I was going to be doing uh, radiation plus a hormonal therapy. And she's you know, because uh, she said to me, she goes, you know, Michael, we really don't know what to do with men who have been on tamoxifen and the cancer comes back. And I remember sitting in her office going, it's 2010. How could you not know what to do? Just because the research isn't yeah, there because there's not enough diagnoses to, yes. to study. I mean, yeah, that's a problem. Was, yeah, which I was still not aware of because I was at that point so sh- like shut off to the cancer community because I just wanted to be done with it. Well, you don't want to be a part of it, right? Yeah. And so you're kind of going along and, and trying to figure things out. And um, and you hadn't met, I want to make sure I have the dates right, you hadn't met another man with breast no, cancer either. No. no, you were the only one you knew. And I had knew of no organization at that point, at back in 2010, um, that uh, you know was helping or guiding men going through this journey. And... Um, and so at that point, you know, the oncologist, I, I did this hormonal therapy for about three months and then I chose to stop it because I was having such severe side effects. And although this oncologist was an excellent oncologist, she was knowledgeable, uh, but there was just no connection. Mm-hmm. And I remember it really it started dawning on me that importance of that relationship, the relationship I had with my first oncologist was so amazing that it was lacking in this one. And every time that I would talk to them about a side effect, their response to me at that point was, well, we can put you on this drug also. And I remember saying to them, I don't want to go on another drug. This drug is doing enough to me. And one point I was in her office and we were, we were talking and I was sharing what I was going through and she had said to me, in the midst of my conversation, she goes, well, I'm not stopping the drug. 
And I remember sitting there, and, and this is the gift I got from her, and how she had the relationship with me and with Tim. Um, the, that connection was lacking, and I remembered I never felt like I was being heard. And I grew up where you never questioned doctors. Mm. You, know, you just didn't, you didn't do that. And I remember the, a voice inside my head sitting there going, that's not your decision. That's my decision. Right. And I, it was like amazing to me that I was saying that because the person who I was was not someone who would recognize my own power with things that I was dealing with. And that was this thing that just kind of clicked inside of me. And I started doing a lot of reading on healing. I, I, I did like Louise Hay and a couple of other authors and was really looking at, you know, how we choose to heal and our mindset within that healing and the connection of the mind, body, and spirit that I had never put together. And so that started me on a whole new path of, um, of this. And so I was at the point while I was seeing her, when I was going through all of this, I was doing acupuncture, doing Reiki, uh, doing shiatsu massage, and also had found a doctor, a GP in Vermont, because we're very close to the Vermont border, where we live in upstate New York, and who um, also did energy work, just the energy flow within your body. Mm -hmm. And everything that I was reading was really kind of leading towards, you know, the energy flow and how that helps healing. Um, and I was talking to him about the struggles with this drug therapy, the struggles with my oncologist, and he actually connected me with an oncologist in Vermont. And so I went to see her, and the minute she walked into the room, that, that connection was there. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I needed, I needed to make that choice of switching. And so I actually went back to my old oncologist, and I reiterated and, and it was and it was a great conversation because I think she then realized the the dynamics of our relationship and um, but I knew I was making the right choice and that I needed to go and that was a gift that I got from her was the importance of that relationship mm -hmm. with the people who were treating us the people who are in a sense are our partners in our healing or in our, our living with this disease. Oh, absolutely. You know? Because it's not, you're not going to have that connection with everyone. I mean, and so why would you think that you would have it just automatically with a doctor? It, it, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I think one of, you know, Jamie, I think one of the neat things for me that's been really blossoming within this journey is trusting myself and trusting that voice inside of me and saying, you know, trust myself enough to know that I, I know the path that I need to take. And I know the type of people that need to be on this path with me. Mm -hmm. And that was an amazing big step for me. I because, you know, I was the person just kind of, tell me what I need to do, you know, get me to that, that five-year mark, you know, just I'll do anything you're going to tell me to do. And yet in this span, it was changing. And, um, and so, uh, in 2012, 
I made the decision to take an early retirement from my elementary school teaching. And um, I had enough years in, I was at 55, where I could buy into my insurance because who was going to give me insurance yes. back then, you know? Um, and so I knew the passion that that one year with all that was going on, and I also had a very challenging class that I was dealing with. Mm. And I realized the passion was gone. And the following year when I went back and passion didn't come back I was like okay something I have to listen to this and um, when I found out that I could take an early retirement I just knew there was there was another step that was coming I didn't know what it was but I had to trust that there was another path that was going to be unfolding and uh, so I made the decision to retire and that following um, that following November after my retirement I sat down and started writing about my experiences of being a man living with breast cancer. And I still had, at this point, still had not met another man. But it does sound, I have to ask you this, it sounds like you, I don't want to say cancer became part of your life, but it was almost like you accepted that you were in that community now. Like you weren't keeping it, you didn't have this dual life anymore. That Yeah, that shield that I had put up that wall mm-hmm. was just was disintegrating. Okay. And it was slowly disintegrating. And I think as I, you know, as I was becoming more comfortable with the fact that I had a voice in, in how I was treated, and I, I had, you know, the belief within myself that how I approach each day is going to help me heal, not necessarily cure. And I, you know, and I had to, and I had a struggle separating those two, mm. healing and curing, because they are two separate things. And I was finally starting to gravitate towards, let me really focus on healing. You know, and that I think is what helped that that wall start crumbling down. And um, so I, I spent a good six to eight months writing um, this book. And eventually ended up uh, self-publishing it through um, Balboa Press, which is an imprint of um, Hay House. And, um, and it was through that then the paper up by me in, out of Glens Falls, New York, did an article on my journey you know, as a man with breast cancer and the fact that I wrote a book. And after the article came out, I got an email from this woman, Peggy Miller, from the Male Breast Cancer Coalition. And I'm reading this email, I'm like, I never even heard of this. Because I'm not one, I was not one to be on the internet. You know, and, and that's also why. I was not, I, I was not a big internet person and this and that. And, which I'm also grateful for, because I know that there was so much misinformation out there. Right. And actually friends had told me, Michael, it's probably good that you're not reading a lot of the stuff about breast cancer, and especially about male breast cancer that's out there. And, but she reached out to me and um, asked if I would you know, be willing to write my story, you know, a small part for their website. And I went to their website and saw that there were these other men that were sharing their stories. Like, oh my gosh. I'm not the only one. Yes. And so at that point, I, I did and I shared. And, and then a couple of times I spoke to a couple of men on the phone. 
And it wasn't until uh, June of 2015, where Tim and I went down to New York City for a fundraiser for the coalition, that I met my first male breast cancer survivor, who was Michael Singer and his wife, Patty, mm -hmm. who are like my brother and my sister. They are family. And I thought, what two better people to meet than these two? And, and Michael, who has you know, his own journey with breast cancer and mm -hmm. you know, not acknowledging it was chest cancer at first and then now is like probably one of the most out there advocates for male breast cancer. Um, and so it was eight years that I had gone without talking to face to face to another male breast cancer survivor and the power of that mm -hmm. is you know is absolutely amazing oh yeah amazing this is you you're know? not alone you have somebody who understands exactly and, what and then you're going it was going to occur that a couple of months later I was diagnosed metastatic yeah and to have these people there was such a blessing and such an anchor for me, you know, the people in the coalition. Um, you know, and stage four has its own dichotomy, its own story, its own parameters, its own path mm -hmm. compared to early stage. Very much so. You know, and I'm still, still learning more about it. Well, I want to ask you too, I, you know, being diagnosed with metastatic disease, frightening, shocking, out, makes you angry just horribly angry but when i talk to you you are uh, to me one of the brightest lightest calmest most loving spirits like just this this positive energy radiates oh, from you. you so i guess if you could talk a little bit about i and i know it's a struggle like yeah. it's a struggle for you internally but you know so how did you come to that place of sort of internal strength and how and what sort of external support have you had because I know you have had that too and I'm sure that helped yeah oh my gosh that's a great question um, you know I think a lot of it was you know my partner Tim who's been an absolute source of positivity for me and and an anchor for me but also our friends um, you know, even though we live out in the country, the friends that we have, um, you know, as I was going through the early stages, you know, they were there, they were supportive, they were concerned. Um, you know, having that family also, um, all of that, I think, helped me. But you're right, I mean, you know, I knew nothing about metastatic breast cancer. And I, I have to ask you this too. So, did any of your doctors, your oncologists, talk to you about that possibility that there could be a metastatic recurrence? No, you know, not even they, even after you had the recurrence. Nobody yeah. really. No, no. Wow. And I and I and I think that's what amazes me. And as I become involved, and especially with Metaviver, you know, which is solely focused on raising money for uh, metastatic breast cancer research, you know, I'm you know. In one of the discussions, you know, they were sharing how 30% of early stagers will progress to metastatic. And I'm thinking, how is it that nobody says that? How come that's not discussed? Not to produce fear, 
But I think to, to say, you know, this is something we have to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be very in tune to your body. You need to be, think, because it, it was a shock for me because, um, you know, I, I have this acid reflux cough. And I remember, you know, the cough had come back. And I, I had, because all of all the uh, alternative therapies are out of pocket, I had kind of gotten to a point where I needed to kind of hold off on some of them because, or all of them because money situation, because of the retirement and stuff. And um, and so the cough was getting worse and I knew I needed to go back to acupuncture because that usually took care of it. But the interesting thing was the, uh, the women like Peggy and Lori, who was with the coalition back then, um, you know, kept saying to me, you know, Michael, you need to get this cough checked. And I'm like, it's my acid reflux cough. You know, it just always starts when I start talking and then it kind of goes away. But I became more aware of it that it wasn't, it was taking longer and longer to subside once I started talking. And because I have the BRCA2 gene, my initial oncologist, and because my dad passed away from pancreatic cancer, my initial oncologist hooked me up with a gastroenterologist that does an endoscopic ultrasound each year on my pancreas and so I was in that September 2nd I was in for my ultrasound and Dr. Cohen came in and he was talking to Tim and me and thankfully I just mentioned to him the cough Mm -hmm. and the interesting thing was because my oncologist was going to put me I had graduated I had gone from three month visits to six month visits to eight month visits because my blood work was excellent and she was saying, Michael, I'm even thinking maybe yearly visits because, you know, your blood work is just excellent. Mm-hmm. And so I told him, you know, about this cough. And so he looked and he found the abnormal lymph nodes in my chest cavity. Mm. That's how I found out it had spread. Did you immediately think that or? Yeah, you did. Okay. So I knew enough because the universe works in amazing <laughs> ways, Jamie. <laughs> Six months prior to this diagnosis, I'm reading an article in our local paper, and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, the, the woman's name was Lori Beckland. She was a former uh, reporter for the LA Times. And she was writing about uh, being metastatic. Mm-hmm. And I remember as I'm reading the article, I couldn't even say the word correctly. I kept jumbling up the word. And I think it was like, I didn't want to say it because I knew enough, you didn't want to go there. Right. That is not where you wanted to progress to. But I remember reading this article and reading how she was like 10 years after being told she's fine mm-hmm. and then being told it's everywhere in her body. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there going, how? How is this possible right. at this day and age? Um, and so that kind of, it was interesting that that happened like six months prior to when I was going to be diagnosed. But it got me thinking. And so. When we went to, you know, um, when we found out that it had spread, my oncologist immediately scheduled a PET scan for me, which I had on my birthday, my, my 59th birthday. That's a <laughs> yes. fine birthday present. Yeah, but it was like, okay, I'm going to find out what's going on. And, um, and then when we met with her about the results, and, and she was the one that said to me, you know, uh, Michael, you know, there's so little out still about male breast cancer. Yeah. So this is 2015. 
And she's like, if you and Tim want to go for a second opinion, like to Dana-Farber in Boston, she goes, go. And she goes, quite honestly, that's what I would be doing. And so she actually was going to contact this, con this person she just um, would contact periodically to get information at Dana-Farber. But we went home, and then we spent like the next two days calling people, letting people know, and talking to people. And during that, all my friends that were up around us, the minute we shared it, their first words were like, in their head they were thinking, oh my God, he's, he's going to have to go through that chemo treatment. And that's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And they were like, we are here. We will drive you. You are not going to be driving by yourself there. We're going to go. If Tim can't go, there's going to be people lined up. So that was kind of like this comforting blanket that was starting to you know, engulf me, mm -hmm. um, encase me in a sense, is even a better word to use. Um, and, and so and then, and then we, we ended up going to uh, Dana-Farber and my oncologist is Dr. Eric Weiner, who at the time I had no idea who he was within the breast cancer. Oh, world. you didn't know. He's a, he's a big deal. He he's, on, he's on our professional advisory is board, he? so oh yeah, he's amazing. Love that man. Yeah. But I mean, again, the universe directed me to, to him. And, and what was interesting with him was before, you know, um, we first spoke with the fellow when we were there um, who was training under him. And then he goes out and he and Dr. Weiner talk and then they come in. And Dr. Weiner came in and this voice inside, before he even said hello, this voice inside my head just went, Michael, you're in good hands. And I just felt a little bit much, you know, a little more, yeah. not totally, but... Uh, because you're listening to yourself. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But what was interesting, you know, with those words that you said, you know, about being calm, being loving, being peaceful, you know, I, I thank you for that, and I'm grateful that that's, that's a part of me. You know, but the reality is it's not the total picture of who I am. And especially at the beginning of this, like like you you did a great job of the all the adjectives you would you would find you know that you would that pop up when you're hearing stage four. Mm -hmm. You know, my first thing was like I actually normally Tim is the one that asks the questions because I'm like in a fog mm -hmm. doing stuff, and it was me who asked when I when I, we were going over the PET scan results that I asked my oncologist in Vermont. I was like, so what stage am I considered? And she said, you know, Michael, unfortunately, you're stage four. You know, the first words that death. Right, right. Everyone's like, mind goes, oh, my God, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die very soon. Mm -hmm. And so all these other things that were happening were kind of tempering that a little. But what started happening, like, after we had been to Dana-Farber, and I was home, and I was on treatment, um, was I, I would go to these very, very dark places. And I could just sense when they were coming. And you know, and I didn't I didn't know where they were originating from at first. And it eventually got to the point that I would just break down. And um, and I ended up usually when it was happening, not to scare our two dogs, I went upstairs to our bedroom and I closed the door. And I would just fall apart, and then I would just start beating the bed. I would just pound our bed, and I would be screaming. 
and I'm cursing, and I'm cursing God, I'm cursing cancer, I'm cursing, I'm saying, take it back, I don't want it. And I would just be pounding and pounding the bed until I was just like exhausted. And this happened, you know, for a couple of weeks. That they, it didn't happen every day, but it would come. And it was, after a while, I realized it was fear. Mm. You know, it was fear that was driving this. And I remember saying, like, you know, most of my life I've been a very fearful person. I've been afraid of a lot of things. Just in general. In general. And I remember at that one point after one of the episodes where I was just like totally exhausted from pounding the bed um, and crying and, and just screaming out that I just heard myself say, I don't want to be afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. This is not how I want to live whatever time I have left. Right. I don't want to be afraid, yet there's so little out there about metastatic breast cancer or any kind of metastatic cancer right. that fear is just going to take over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it's, it's getting to that place and finding, you know, and stating to yourself, I don't want to be afraid anymore. And, and realizing the support you have, realizing what's around you, realizing what can possibly come of that. And, you know, I had fantastic doctors. I had fantastic friends and family that were around me. And I, I remember thinking how lucky and how grateful I am for that because there are people that don't have that. And I don't know how you go through, even at early stage breast cancer, how you go through that on your own, you know? And I and um, and so that was there, and, and they it still pops up, mm-hmm. you know. There are those moments that I'm not as perky as people think, you know, all the time. I'm not Mr. Positive, you know. Poor Tim, especially as you know, I'm dealing with hormonal therapy. I think, oh, I bet. you know, Tim. See, you know, Tim is like, I think at times, like, okay, which, which Michael am I dealing with here? And the littlest thing can set me off. Mm-hmm. You know, but the thing is, I kind of just sit with it. And, and I don't try to fight it, and I just accept it, and, I, and then I say, okay, you know what? I don't want to stay in this dark place. Right. I don't want to stay in this angry place. What can I do? And I think that was also what propelled me to look beyond like the male breast cancer coalition that I was doing advocacy work for. And um, you know, I, I learned about the NBC Alliance being their representative on the alliance. And then um, connected with people with Metavibr. Mm-hmm. And that sense of community has really helped me and continues to help me deal with the times that I feel like, oh God, I don't want to do this path. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be on this path. I don't want this disease. And then I kind of get back to thinking, look what you're doing. You know, I'm now doing a whole a, another level of teaching, you know, right. that, and I'm realizing that that's the path. That's why I left teaching early, because that was the path that was going to be unfolding for me. And you're dispelling fear because, it, and this is just my opinion, yeah. but that's such a 
a big part of a metastatic diagnosis is because nobody does want to talk about it because it is so scary. So if you don't talk about it, that almost makes it worse. It's like the scary thing in your closet when yes. you're a kid because you never talk about it and you never see it and it just gets bigger and bigger, bigger. and bigger. Yes, you know, and it does until it's the whole closet. Right. You know, and that's the thing. And I think that's why, you know, as I've gotten more involved, especially with my metavivors, I've learned more and more about metastatic breast cancer. And I'm meeting more and more, you know, people, you know, 99% of the population is women. And I'm meeting these young women who are being diagnosed in their 20s and their 30s. And I'm thinking, it's 2018, how is this happening? You know, these are individuals with young children. And it's not to disregard or diminish my you know, my own path with this, or any single man or any single woman going through this. But I look at these women who have children, mm -hmm. who are sitting there saying, you know, I don't even know if I'll see them graduate from kindergarten. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you, how do you do it? Right, right. You know, but it's the sense of community. You know, as we were talking earlier, you know, this, this, is, this is an amazing, amazing community. The people who make this up, it stinks, the prerequisite, you know, the, the reason why you're in this community. Right. You know, either whether you're living with it or a caregiver or a partner of someone, you know, living, living with this disease. But it's the people that I'm meeting. As I've grown out of this fear, you know, it, it's there, but it, now it's in the passenger seat. It's not in the driver's seat, which is so important. But it's there. And, and when that fear comes, you know, I hold on to the people that I know are around me, but I also hold on to these amazing, amazing women and men that I have met that are going through this journey. Mm -hmm. And that helps. And, you know, um, when I started advocating, there was that part of me that was afraid to do it. Okay. You know, there was that part of me because it was like, what? But these people are going to die. These people are going to be leaving sooner than you know most people do because of our diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And yet, I still put myself out there. You know. Um, and it was like, um, at the, you know, I was, I was at the stage four stampede that Metaviver does, where we meet, they meet and they call, you know, people um, to come to Washington, D.C. for the stage four stampede. They do a march, then they do a die-in to represent the 113 women and men that die each day from this disease. And then they, we go into the Senate building and they organize us into teams by states or an even combination of states to go and we go talk to our representatives in Congress and the senators. And I did that last year and I got such a sense of community mm -hmm. from that. And I remember going up to Beth Fairchild, who's the president of Medifiver, when I saw her afterwards and I said, I need, I need, I want to become more a part of Medifiver. Because this is amazing. This was so empowering. And it was like, okay, this is the path 
this is the path I need to go down. It felt right. Yes, it was like, you know, it was that click, okay. you know, and I remember, you know, and so it was like this past December that Beth called me and asked if I would be willing to be on the board of Medivite, which I was like, oh my God, I would love to. And, um, and so that's where it started, and I've been learning even more and becoming even more. But I was talking with Beth about that, because I was sharing with her about how I was reluctant to kind of get into that advocacy at first, and why. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, Michael, but, but somebody tells me, you know, like, but thank God we met these people. And, and thank God they affect us. We have that hurt when they go, when they pass. Because we allowed them in, we allowed to feel, we allowed to connect with them. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes surviving this, living with this disease, so much more doable. Mm -hmm. Because you've got this amazing family. Um, you know, and then, but, but each time someone passes, there's that, that death fear. Mm -hmm. Again, it's like, oh my God, this, is, this could be me. Right. And then you can either stay in that fear, okay. or you can sit there and say, but what can I do so that we don't lose more that, of Yeah, us? that there's one less. Yes. 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 Absolutely. That there's one less, yeah. So here is a question. Now, you're a gay man diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. You're a minority among minorities. <laughs> Why not? You know, um, it makes yeah, life interesting. Well, sure. Was it hard for you? I mean, you, you know, you you are such an advocate, and, and I, you know, you you talked about your hesitation, but was it hard to kind of, you know, put yourself out there? You're an advocate. You were also in the story I've told. I mean, that was a very intimate portrait of both you and Tim. Yeah. And was it? Did either of you have any hesitation? Like, do we really want to share everything? Um, you know, it's funny, I think at the time, it didn't. I, you know, I was retired from teaching. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, I don't think it would have been different if I was still teaching. Okay. Because um, I think by near the end of my career, it was like most people knew that I was gay, and my colleagues were like, you know, loved it when Tim and I would come and do things with them and stuff. Um, and it never was a problem with my doctors because I came out to my GP when I moved to Albany. And all of my doctors knew. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was not going to hide it from them. Sure. And I knew enough that if there was a problem, I wasn't going to stay with that doctor. Absolutely. You know? Um, but, you know, for most of my life, I was terrified of anybody knowing that I was gay. Really? You know, growing up, you know, I was born in the 50s, so I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. As I'm coming out was through during the AIDS crisis. Oh wow! Um, and I knew enough that I I was not going to be totally honest with people about who I was. And I think that was one of the things that came out of especially the stage four was. Um, and I shared it, you know, when I was uh, with the second diagnosis when I became part of the app with Male Breast Cancer Coalition. It was. I think it was, you know, it's in my story about my partner, Tim. Mm -hmm. And I, so I started bringing down that wall. Okay. You know, it was amazing how many walls I had built up around myself. <laughs> you don't realize yeah, that. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh my God. You know? um, and I think especially at stage four, I was like, um, there was this different sense that came over me. Because I remember a time um, I got a phone call 
from um, Laurie Marks Rubiner out in LA. She has since passed from the aesthetic. But she does. She was doing a lot of advocacy work with Dr. Susan Love out okay. there, mm -hmm. and they were starting this um, advocacy thing of collateral damage for metastatic breast cancer. Right. And Lori was someone who was like, "You need to have men on this." And she had contacted Lori Berlin of the coalition. And Lori gave her my name, and so Lori was talking to me, and. Um, I remember talking with him, thinking, wow, I've never been to L.A. Wow, Tim and I maybe could get out to L.A. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I have to get on a plane. I had not been on a plane like 11, 12 years because I was terrified of flying. Oh. But what was interesting was after the call, and I was sharing with Tim about the call that she was going to put my name in. And I was like, we might be able to get out to L.A. And I went, oh, my God, I have to get on a plane. I'm thinking, Michael, you're stage four. <laughs> Why? Kind of puts that in perspective, yes, right? Like, and you're terrified of getting on a plane? And it was like, it was like that realization of, again, I don't want to be afraid. Okay. You know, fear was showing its face again, an old fear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was like, no. And so I did it. And especially since I've been with Metaviver, I've been traveling all over where my friends are going, my God, look at you. You wouldn't get on a plane, and now every time we, we see you on Facebook or something, you're someplace else. <laughs> but it was, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I've been very, very open about being gay. I've been very open because um, I'm also at that point where I don't have patience for people that have to judge me by that. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to take the time to get to know me, mm -hmm. you know, you're not somebody... And that's also one of the things from stage four, I think, also. It was like... I don't have time for people that need to do that. Sure. And if you're going to have a problem with it, okay, you know, that, that's your issue. Mm -hmm. um, I need to live my truth because all my life I was, re I was too afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, it allows me to be more vulnerable, more open. You know, with the story half told, which was an amazing experience, um, I didn't because of the people that were filming us and, and, and photographing us, it was like they were family to both Tim and I. And we just, I was open. And I was like, I need, to, I need to speak my truth. I need to live my truth. Because that's the only way this is going to move forward. And, um, and so I've been very, very fortunate that it's never been an issue with any of my doctors about being gay, um, you know, and having Tim there. Um, and yet, I'm sure, unfortunately, there are people that, you know, do have that issue. Right, or and, they, and, they and, haven't overcome the fear yet. Yeah, they haven't overcome the fear, or they're stuck in a part of the country, or live in a part of the country, I shouldn't say stuck, live in part of the country where access to like a cancer center, right. is, it's just not doable. Yeah, right. You know, it's so there's hard. so many factors that play into it. But I think for me, and, and what I had hoped would come out, especially in the story I've told, was that I was, I was revealing all of me. I think that you know? definitely comes out. And I think that, I mean, all the stories are amazing. so touching, amazing. Yeah. They made me feel a lot, but I, 
there was something about yours that just, you know, you talk about how you had, you felt like an instant connection with Dr. Weiner. Yeah. I kind of felt that with you and Tim and I had never met you. Yeah. And I think it was because you can just tell from the videos and the photos that you are both being so open yeah. and that you're not trying to hide anything. It's just like, this is who we are and this yeah. is how we are living with this disease. Yeah. And yeah. it was very, um, it, 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 you know, I say this and, and I don't mean it facetiously, it was very hopeful. It made me very hopeful oh, when I watched it. So, and, and then, you know, and it was, um, you know, the people that were there were so loving and so, so concerned and so connecting every single person that was there. Um, I think one of the sweetest things about that story was like, uh, there was this young woman, Jen, that was working with the videographer. And as they were packing up that Friday, because it was their last day of videotaping, um, she was in our dining room. Tim and I, I think we were sitting in the living room like, <laughs> you know, we were kind of sad to see it end, but like, wow. Emotionally draining, yeah. sure. And Jen stood there in the dining room and she was like, Michael and Tim. And she started crying. And she was like, is there a memento I could have oh. from you to remember you? Oh. And I remember sitting there and I was like, oh my gosh, Jen, that is, that is so beautiful. And so Tim and I were talking and I'm like, I don't, what do we give? And what can we give her? And Tim was like, well, you, you know, you have that plant upstairs that you just repotted, a jade plant. So I was like, Jen, do you love plants? She goes, oh my God, I love plants. So I brought the jade plant down and we were packing it and she just started sobbing, hugged us both and walked out. And Matt, the videographer, came up to both Tim and I and he goes, you guys will never know how much that meant to her. She grew up in the Bronx and it wasn't a really good mm. upbringing. And when people like, you know, like you guys give a piece of, of you to her, it means so much. And I was like, what a perfect way for this to end because I felt they were giving to, uh, to Tim and me by allowing us this venue to share our story and to get the word out there that about metastatic breast cancer, but also that men get metastatic breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's just been, you know, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Well, so speaking of traveling, yeah. I have to ask you about this, uh, this RV trip yes. that you yes. are going on. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, NetViver, um, through these wonderful grants from different orga uh, pharmaceutical organizations and uh, other organizations, has an RV that they go coast to coast with each now is year. It Painted. I mean, it's clearly on, on the outside. It will say Metaviber. It will also say each of the organizations that have donated money for this. So there's no mistaking it when it yes, rolls through your town. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't say <laughs> yeah. rented by. <laughs> but um, but it's so it has that. And what they try to do is it, the purpose of it is it to raise awareness of metastatic breast cancer. And what they it's called the C to C campaign. NBC okay. and it's this RV and they usually try to have two patients or a patient and a caregiver that drive it across different segments of the country and along the way we'll meet like may stop in at cancer centers 
and talk about patient needs. We'll meet or like might meet up with a group of people that uh, are associated with Metaviver, that give to Metaviver, that, you know, and, and meet up with them. Do you um, have them for dinner in the RV? How does that work? You know, I'm not really sure how they, what they do. <laughs> this is our first time and this kind of happens so fast. But I, I don't know if it's a big crowd that the, the, the RV could handle it. But, um, but it's also they stop at the pharmaceutical companies, their offices that have given the grants to, for this. Um, I, I think there's like materials that are out that we can give out to people about metastatic breast cancer. Um, you know, hopefully hooking up with uh, the news media. Sure. You know, to help spread the word. Um, like, I, you know, I know like in Seattle, we'll be going to Seattle Genetics because they are a very big sponsor of this. And um, Cascadian, which used to be a separate entity of, of Seattle Genetics, but is now part of them. Uh, last year, the people of Cascadian apparently had a map of the United States and pins, and they followed the RV as it was going, which was amazing. Uh, and it's a way, you know, for people to start that conversation. You know, people are more likely to come up and say, okay, what's, what's this all about? Yeah, what is metastatic? Yeah. And I think especially as, okay, why are you a guy driving this, this van? Well, let me tell you about that. Right. But it's, it's great. And so Tim and I, um, the van has, has gone cross-country now. It's, it's now in Seattle. And they had different people at different places doing things. And they were also following um, our, um, our vice president, Pam King, who, uh, who has since just recently passed away from metastatic breast cancer. But she always did this thing, drive for stage four. And it was old cars driving across, a race across the country. Oh, really? And they were raising money. And I think at last, the last report that we had, it was over $60,000 was raised wow. from this race. And in the midst of it, um, she wasn't feeling well, went back home to Rhode Island, got, went into the hospital and just went downhill, you know, went mm. from there. And within, I think, a week was gone. And it was, it's such a great loss with her because one being the vice president, she was also part of a big organizer of the stage four stampede that I'm now um, kind of filling in her shoes somewhat, trying to. Um, but, uh, so the RV was following this race also and meeting up with them at certain points to help bring more awareness. Sure. Um, so, but um, I got a call from CJ who is one of the founding members of Metaviver, actually the only remaining founding member of the four women that had founded Metaviver in 2009, right. when Metaviver started. And um, she was like, you know, Michael, we need, we need some drivers for, and she was naming off different sections, like you know, Washington, Oregon, Southern California, and then I think they end up New Mexico to Arizona, I think is the last leg of it. And I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, I've always wanted to go to the Northwest. So I'm like, this is what a wonderful way to do it. So not everything is kind of quick because it was okay. like a last minute decision that we were able to do it this month. Sure. And so Tim and I are going to be fly out to Seattle and then do it. And we're hoping what I would love to do is kind of like a little video blog that we send out so people can see and you know we'd yes, love to share we it would you. love to host that yeah. publish that and so if you're listening um, stay tuned for that yeah, because we would I'm love to share these adventures i'm so thrilled about that because we'll also share it with metaviver but sure. the more 
other organizations we can share with to get the word out. Absolutely. Um, you know, because I think part of the conversation is what we talked about before was like, you know, that 30% of women and men in an early stage will progress to metastatic. Yeah. And that discussion may be starting to happen, hopefully, in some doctor offices. But for the most part, I, you know, my experience is it's not. Yeah. And so that's one of the things we're also hoping. And also, um, you know, for me, it's an opportunity to be visual of, of a man living with metastatic breast cancer. You know, I, I recently just spoke in Tampa at Metaviber and, and the Metastasis Research Society's engagement conference, which was all research about research that's going on about metastatic. And I spoke about male breast cancer briefly, and the gist of my, my uh, talk was, you know, that we start including the word men mm -hmm. in our breast cancer vocabulary, because so many men, a lot of the times, are, are diagnosed stage four, right. or progress to stage four very quickly because they're diagnosed so late because, we, you know, they still don't realize that men get breast cancer. Right. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity to get the word out about breast cancer, to get the word out about metastatic breast cancer, to start conversations, you know, about that. You know, and, and I'm hoping that there are people, like when we stop somewhere, that there are people gonna be coming up and saying, you know, looking at the outside of the RV and what it's, you know, the logos and everything sure. that are on the wrappings around it. You know, okay, what's this all about? Definitely. And, you know, and having that conversation because what, you know, one of the things I shared when I was talking at the engagement conference was, you know, we have to realize that the conversations in our homes are not just with our daughters mm -hmm. or our wives or our sisters. It's with our, it's with our sons also, mm -hmm. our husbands, our partners, you know, our uncles, our grandfathers, right. our grandmothers. You know, that conversation now encompasses everyone. And so our vocabulary needs to encompass that yeah and, it, and it's going to take a while for that because for so long it's been designated as a woman's disease yeah. well and it's yeah and it's hard and, and you, you know we talked about the research just a little bit but if you only have if if one percent of the people who are diagnosed with breast cancer are men it's very hard to even get a, a quantity to do a study on. That's why, you know, it, it's got to be very hard to be an oncologist because you don't have these big studies yeah. to say, oh, well, this is obviously the next treatment. Yeah, I, there is one study, but it's inter it has to be international. It's in partnership with um, oncologists in Europe. Okay. And Dr. Sharon Giordano at MD Anderson okay. in Houston is... Um, the American lead for that, okay. but yeah, but and it was because they didn't have enough population here right. to do a study. And I think they're in phase two of that um, of that study. Okay. And so I think hopefully things will be coming up. But what was also, which is starting to change, but what was also as a drawback was that a, you know men were excluded from a lot of the clinical trials exactly. that are there. Which I kept, and when I was hearing that, I kept thinking like, well, but you're telling me the only treatment you have for me is what is, what is out there for women. Right. So why am I excluded? So, but that is, that, that is also starting to change. Yes. Um, and so I think as it, as it becomes, I think this year, uh, Dr. Giordano recently wrote an article, and I forget for which magazine, but 
um, a French sent it to me, and it was, she was saying like, this year, in 2018, they were expecting like, a little over 2,500 men will be diagnosed. Mm, over yes. 500 will die I saw that. Uh, of this. And so it's, I think, you know, we're starting, we're starting to get more out there. We're starting to become more part of the vocabulary, yes. and, um, which, is, which is great. Um, but I, there's so much more, you know, that has to be done. But, you know, as we talked about each organization, what they're doing, you know, what breastcancer.org is doing, what Medivivor is doing, you know, what the NBC Alliance is doing. Each of them, you know, are bringing us closer mm-hmm. to getting a cure. You know, defining out why and how breast cancer spreads. You know, because metastatic breast cancer is the breast cancer that kills, yet less than 7% of all funding goes towards breast cancer research. Yep. You know, so it's, I think hopefully part of that conversation is not only going to be recognizing that men are part of this, but that also that we need to up the research funding for this. You know, if 30% mm-hmm. are likely going to progress, then we need to be having at least 30% of funds going towards metastatic breast cancer. Michael, thank you so much. Oh my God, Jamie, this thank is Thank you so much.